Well, thanks again for being with us today. And my name is Corey. I think I forgot to mention that earlier. And I have the honor and privilege of being lead pastor here at GFC. It's great to see some new faces with us today. So thank you for spending part of your Sunday with us here uh, in the room, you're watching online, or you're listening later on the podcast. It is great to be able just to come and worship with you today. I'm very thankful also that the weather seems to be getting nicer outside, and so we're turning that corner. Easter was last week. We get to kind of look forward into summer, and that brings some fun stuff, and you heard Pastor Andrew talk about it a little bit earlier. I want to talk just for a minute a little bit more about what the tailgate is, because if you haven't been a part of this before, it's an awesome time to just get together and have awesome food. Okay, so what's going to happen is that Sunday, we're going to just come and have a worship service like we do, but we're going to shorten it just a little bit. Yes, I will talk a little bit less. And then we'll go outside and you will have brought something. And the way that this works is you just kind of back into your spot, have your tailgate open, get your food out. And then guess what? You get to walk around to everybody else's car and see the awesome food that they brought. And so you get to try new things. You get to meet new people. It's a great time to be able to say, okay, we just saw a bunch of people up here. Maybe we haven't met yet. Let's get to know them and have that conversation. So we're really excited about that. And we're also starting to think about uh, 4th of July, because if you didn't know, 4th of July, New Holland sets off their fireworks right here in our field. And so what we get to do is we have literally thousands of people in our backyard and we get to go just be friends with them, right? And so one of the things we did last year was we handed out waters and popsicles and glow sticks. Uh, We ran out in about 10 minutes because we didn't get enough. So this year we're going to try and do a thousand of each and try and just go to all the people and say, hey, welcome. And we open our building as a bathroom and all kinds of fun stuff like that. So summer just brings fun opportunities. So I'm excited uh, to look forward to these these months and hopefully you are as well. And so let's dive into our conversation today. One of the things that we say at GFC is we want everybody to be established on the foundation of Jesus. You'll hear me say that a lot, probably to the point uh, where you're like, yes, we know, we've heard it already. But here's where we're at. We're in a series that we're calling The Problem of Jesus. And so we're creating this kind of tension, right? Saying we want to establish ourselves on the foundation of Jesus, but we are seeing some problems. And what does that mean and how does that work? And here's what I want us to get, and we'll dig into this today, is that when we accept that Jesus was who he said he was, or at least who the scriptures say he was, that creates some problems for us that we have to kind of look in the mirror and recognize some things and kind of figure out what that means for us. And so a couple of weeks ago, problem number one was this. The reality of Jesus creates a personal problem. And that personal problem is Jesus said that he came as a savior to seek the lost or the sinners. Here's the problem. None of us want to be known as a sinner. That's not a good title. Okay? So when we think about that, we go, well, Jesus said he came to save everybody or to seek all the sinners. Guess what? We have to accept that we're put in that category. I don't like to do that. I don't think you do. And I think a lot of people don't. We don't like that idea. We like to admit that we make mistakes or we, we accidentally do things. But when we, act, when we think about sin, it means that I'm actively doing something and there might even be consequences for what I have done. And so we have to look ourselves in the mirror and understand that. Here was problem two. Last week on Easter, we talked about the fact that you can't be neutral on the resurrection of Jesus. And so either it happened or it didn't, right? I've t- had conversations with people and they go, I say, what do you think about that? And they go, yeah, I, I don't really know what to believe about that you you got to pick a side on whether someone's dead or not, right? Like, there's no middle ground. 
And so you have to say, okay, if Jesus died, did he, if, did he stay dead or did he actually rise again? And so we have to either say, yes, we believe that and we live our lives in light of that. Or we say, no, we don't believe that and we live our life in light of that. By the way, if you miss those two conversations and you want to go back to them, you can do that on our uh, YouTube page and find both of them. Or you can listen to them uh, on our podcast, wherever you get your podcast. But that brings us to today. So we have the problem where we have a personal issue where we are sinners and we have to accept that Jesus is the Savior. Then we have the problem of whether he actually rose from the dead or not. Which side am I going to pick? And here's problem number three that we're going to talk about today. Can I live my life based on 2,000-year-old information? See, the logical question, if we're going to say that Jesus rose from the dead, right, that's what I talked about last week and why we can believe that. If that's the logical place we come to, the next question is, well, can I actually trust the accounts that are given that make that claim? Is it worth following? And the tension there becomes, this information is at least 2,000 years old. How many things do you count on with, that's 2,000 years old, right? Every few years we get a new phone. Maybe every few years you get a new car. If you go back 10 years, 20 years, and look at the phones or the cars then, there's a massive difference, right? I remember as a kid we had a car phone. Anyone remember those? And you probably had, it had like a little zipper case that it came in and it probably cost like $8 a minute to like talk on, right? And now I have something in my pocket that does way more than just allow me to make phone calls from the car. Why? Because we have new information. We've made new discoveries. We've made things better. And when things get better, we tend to go towards that. We put all that information together and we take the new thing. But with, in this case, we're saying that the information we got 2,000 years ago is the basis of what we should believe. It's counterintuitive to what we normally do. And yet, there could be reasons why we believe we should do that. So here's what I want to do today. I want to give you four reasons or ask four questions that might come up when we have this conversation and give some information. Fair warning, sometimes when I'm up here, I, I go into preach mode, right? Sometimes today, it's going to feel more teachy than preachy. Okay? There's going to be a little more information at times, but we're going to land in a space that challenges us on what we're going to do with this information. Okay? Everybody still with me? We good? Okay, good. All right, so here we go. Here's question number one. How do the Gospels stand up to other historical accounts? So when we take the Gospels or we take the New Testament and we, say, we look at them as historical documents that were given to us, right? How do they match up or how do they work when you look at the scrutiny of other historical accounts that we would believe are true? Do they pass the same litmus test to say they are historical or they are not? Well, let me give you a few. I'm going to give you three. Three other historical accounts and how much information we have on those. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about the New Testament. So here's the first one and we're going to put them up on the screen for you. Aristotle, right? You've probably heard about him, learned about him in high school or at somewhere along the way, right? He lived 384 to 322 BC. So we're talking about three to 400 years before Jesus was around, right? So we go back that far. He wrote the Poetics. We have eight copies dated 1400 years after the originals from 335 BC. So you're drawing that line, you go, okay, they were written way back in 335. The next account we have of them, we, we find, is 1,400 years later, and we have eight copies. Okay, so that's kind of the gap we're working with. That's Aristotle. Julius Caesar was around 100 to 44 BC. He wrote Gaelic, the Gaelic Wars in 58 BC. A new, we have a few copies dated 1,000 years after his death. 
So he writes it, we get a thousand years later, we have more information on those, that gap is a thousand years. Then we have Alexander the Great who was around 365 to 323 BC. We have two biographies about him, the earliest written 400 years after his death. Now let's think about that for a minute, that sounds weird. Why would we have a biography or two biographies that are written 400 years after? Now let's think about that for just a minute because this helps us in the conversation with the New Testament as well. Think about the process of writing things down at this point in history, okay? Uh, we have paper today like never before, right? I mean, I can give you notebooks. You probably have a drawer full of notebooks at home that just don't get used. I just saw a bunch of you go, yep, that's true. So we just have paper. We have paper, we have pens. You can get them for free no matter where you go, basically, right? Not the case back then. To write something down, to keep an account, to make sure that somebody else got that. It was expensive, it was time consuming, and it wasn't something that everyone had the ability to do. So what did you depend on? You depend on the stories that your dad, your grandfather, your grandmother, your great-grandmother, the, the stories that they would tell you, that information you would hand down. And so in that situation, 400 years later, if you could tie a line and you know, this person knew this person, knew this person, knew this person who knew him, then you can go, okay, well that actually works. Because back then, that's how they handed out information. And nonetheless, we have these three instances where we see the, cop the amount of copies we have, just a few or two or some, and there's a gap of at least 400 years. And all of these are considered to be trusted and historically accurate. So we don't have a problem looking at these and saying, we believe the accounts we have from these areas or from these authors are what they say they wrote. Now, let's go to the New Testament. The New Testament was written within 60 years after the events occurred. So we know that all of the, all of the New Testament was written for the first time within 60 years after Jesus died and rose again. And so by 100 AD, we've got everything in the New Testament. We have over 25,000 manuscripts today. Now make sure we understand that, right? We're not talking the autographs. We don't have the originals. And some of the manuscripts are about this size. They're not the whole book. But when we look at the amount of information that's on it, we can tie it back to one of the things that, or one of the passages that are in that book that it claims to be from, and we can match it up, and it continues to be the same as the later copies we have that are much bigger. And then we have the earliest copies, or the earliest manuscripts, within 90 to 100 years of their autographs. And so the earliest pieces, right, even though they're super small, we can take all the way back to within 100 years after the original was written. Now think about that, right? We've got the New Testament. We've got it written within 60 years of the events. We've gotten 25, over 25,000 manuscripts, and we know that they come back, that first manuscript, within 100 years. And then we go back and think about the other options, the other historical accounts we just talked about, right? When we look at it through that lens... The New Testament has more proof that it's true than any of those other accounts. And so that's a big deal when looking at what, how we look at Scripture, how we look at does it hold up, does it work when we compare it with other historical accounts, and I believe that they 100% do. So that brings us to our second question. Do the Gospels fit in with the rest of history? So when we look at the Gospels, do we have to say, okay, here's a bunch of stories, here's a bunch of things, and then we have to remove them from the rest of the timeline of history because they don't seem to be tied into what actually happened. Here's where I want to go to Scripture for the first time, okay? So if you have a Bible, 
you can open it to John 18. Or if you have a phone, you can turn on. Or like we said earlier, if you take um, your Next Steps card here, and on the back there's a little QR code. If you just take out your smartphone and you scan that QR code, it'll take you to our Follow Along tab. And that'll give you all of the notes, all of the scriptures. You can send in a prayer request. You can ask a question. Because I might say some things today that you might have questions about. So feel free to send in a question. But if you'd like to follow along, uh, that's where you can do that. And we'll also have the verses up on the screen for you. So in John chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 28. It says this, Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them. And they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate Passover, verses 29 to 30. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? And they say, We couldn't have handed him over if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Verses 31 and 32. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate said. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. For this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Okay, I'm going to stop here for a minute and just kind of talk us through what's happening. Jesus is on trial, right? This is before he goes to the cross. And so the Jewish officials, they take him to Pilate. By the way, it's the middle of the night and they can't go in. So they wake Pilate up in the middle of the night. He comes stumbling out and he's like, what do you people want? <laughs> right? And so they give him Jesus and he goes, this, he, why, why are you bringing me Jesus? Is basically what he says. And they say, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal. So then he says this, right? In verse 31, then take him away and judge him by your own law. What, Jew, what, or sorry, what Pilate is saying is he's saying, I don't want this man's blood on my hands. You take him and stone him instead. Technically, they weren't allowed to do that without his permission. So he goes, hey, you do that. That's fine. You take care of it. Leave me alone. Let me go back to bed. Okay? That's where Pilate is in this moment. They say only the Romans are permitted to execute someone. So here's what's happening. They're fighting over who gets the responsibility of killing Jesus. Because neither of them want that blood on their hands. Pilate wants to keep peace. He knows that Jesus is a popular guy. People are going to be upset if the Romans kill him. His job was to keep the peace, right? Rome was fighting other wars. They already established this. Just keep them quiet. The Jews come and they want him dead, but they also know that he's got a lot of followers who are going to be upset at them if they kill him. So they're both fighting over, no, we don't, you know, who's going to do the dirty work of the other person. So let's keep going. In verses 33 and 34, then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question? Or did others tell you about me? Verse 35, am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37, Pilate said, so are you a king? Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. 38 and 39, what is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, he is not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of taking, of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? 
And so if you've read the rest of that story, they ultimately say, no, we don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. So they hand Jesus over and he is crucified. Now, why is this story so important? There's two big reasons why it's important. Pilate is a very important person in this conversation of whether the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, are true or not. I'm going to get into that in a minute. But here's the second thing. Jesus is claiming truth. And Pilate looks at him and goes, so what is truth? That's the question we're asking today. And they've been asking it for over 2,000 years. What do we believe is actually true? And one of the main players in the crucifixion of Jesus is pondering this and trying to figure out who this Jesus is and what he should do with him. Now, Pilate's so important because Pilate is someone that everybody knew. In fact, we have archaeological evidence that Pilate was actually around at the same time. I'm going to show you a picture. Actually, Megan's going to show you a picture so we can put it up on the screen. So this is a piece of stone um, that, if you could read it, right, says it is dedicated to Pontius Pilate which is the pilot that we're talking about in the Gospels. This was found in the early, they mark it to early years AD, so right around the time that Jesus would have been around in a town that was not so far away from where Jesus lived his life. And so we see archaeological evidence that this person that is included in the Gospels was actually around at that time with evidence outside of just the Gospels. And also there were other historians at the time, or about a generation later, that also confirm that Pilate was there in power at that moment. So what does that do for us? What does that do for the Gospel accounts? First of all, it does this. It, it, it says that the Gospel accounts fit into the historical timeline. They match. They use someone at a time who was ruling over Israel. And so we don't have to take them and say, okay, this doesn't work with our timeline. In fact, what happens is the gospels just kind of fit nicely as a puzzle piece into the rest of the historical timeline. It says that the gospel accounts use real people. This isn't just a bunch of guys that are just, you know, the disciples of Jesus and they don't connect and they don't interact with anybody else around. But they, they use real other people that we know were living and in power at the time. And so this means that if the gospel accounts were false, they could easily be refuted. Pilots know like just Joe Schmo on the side of the road, right? He was someone everyone in the town knew. And so if this account came out and they say, we brought him to Pilate and Pilate did this and Pilate did that and Pilate said this, right? Somebody would have spoke up and said, that's not true. Pilate wasn't around at this time. He didn't interact in this way. He didn't do that. Instead, what we see throughout history is none of that argument is ever made. And people recognize that Pilate was actually real. And so it ties the Gospels in with the rest of history. And so this is massively important when we think about whether we can trust Scripture. Let's go to number three. Can we trust the authors? Okay, so now last one of the last questions. We look at the accounts and we say, okay, they seem to be historically accurate. They seem to work. They seem to match up to other details. But what about if these authors, what if they had some ulterior motive? What if they thought that by doing this, they were going to gain something? What if they wanted to lie to the next generations to try and prove something or establish something that wasn't already true? But here's the thing. The authors had nothing to gain and everything to lose. And why do I say that? Because think about the interaction that we just had with Pilate and the Jewish leaders. 
Neither one of them wanted to kill Jesus because neither one of them wanted to be responsible to the people. And yet what ends up happening is they do come together and they do finally kill Jesus. Even though neither one of them wanted to be the ones to do it, they finally get it accomplished. And then the number one thing that they both want at that point is for Jesus to stay in that tomb and be gone. They want to be done with it. Pilate wants to be done with people waking him up in the middle of the night and the Jewish leaders want to be done with Jesus. The problem then that they have is when there's an empty tomb and no one can say where the body is and there's a bunch of followers saying that he's risen and alive and making these claims, now they've got an uprising that they want to get rid of. And then you've got a bunch of authors coming along in the next few years and continuing to perpetuate and watch this fire grow that is the early church. Both groups, the Romans and the Jews, were bringing persecution down on the Christians. And we see that if we go back to earlier in the year when we did our seven churches in Revelation conversation, we saw some more of that. And so when they write these books, they're putting a target on their back. There wasn't money in the early church. There wasn't success. There was fame. What there was is persecution and sometimes even death. And so their motivation for writing this was never to gain power or money or influence. The second thing is that the disciples don't actually make themselves look very good. Have you ever noticed that? They kind of look silly. They get arguing about who gets to sit next to Jesus in, in heaven, right, or in the, in the kingdom. They don't understand. They don't get it. Uh, they fight with one another. They fight with Jesus. I mean, Peter gets called Satan. He probably would have taken that out if he had his say, right? So they don't always look very good, and they, they miss the whole point. When Jesus was walking out of that tomb, no one is waiting for him to come walking out of the tomb because they don't get it. They don't see it. Now think about this, right? If you were one of the people who was in this story, or if you were one of the ones writing another version of this or trying to tell this story, and you were one of the characters in the story, how would you want to make yourself look? Even if you weren't one of the people in the story, if you were someone that wanted the story to continue, how would you have made the first leaders of the church look? You probably would have made them look really good. You would have wanted them to seem like they understood, they got it, they were knowledgeable, they were ready for Jesus when he came out of the tomb. They were preparing for that, not hiding in an upper room. They would have been exciting about it. But all throughout the Gospels, what we see is that over and over and over again, they say things that are silly, they do things that are silly, and they don't get it. Now, here's the thing, right? We would all do the same thing. We can't look at the disciples and go, oh, those silly disciples, right? But we see that they don't elevate themselves beyond realizing that they are very human and flawed individuals. And so the third thing that I think helps us understand this is this. Jesus doesn't address hot-button topics in the early church. Now, what do I mean by that? People today even do this, right? They hijack Jesus. And they say, well, Jesus would be on my side. Some of this was happening in the early church. And what I mean by that is when the early church started, you had um, some, some Jews who had been Jewish for a very long time, right, all the way back in their family lines for thousands of years. You've got some Gentiles that are coming in, and now they're welcome into the church. Well, the Jews didn't like the Gentiles. Gentiles don't necessarily like the Jews. You've got Samaritans that are now welcome into the church. The Jews and the Samaritans definitely didn't get along. And so you've got a bunch of arguments happening, specifically with the Jews saying, hey, you guys have to follow the rules that we've had to follow for like thousands of years. You don't just get to come in and be part of the party and not have to do the things that we've done, right? You can only eat certain things. And you can only dress a certain way. You can always do it. And the other, other people are coming in and go, hey, listen, no one told us about that. 
We don't need to do these things. We can, we can be a part of this and we don't need to do that stuff. And there was this argument, you can go into Acts and find this, where there was this argument going on where people were saying, you have to do this, do that, do that. But here's what doesn't happen. If they were perpetuating the story, what one of them probably would have done if it wasn't true was they would have leveraged Jesus to talk about these issues. And they would have said, here's where Jesus said, and you, you get to enter, you know, you get to have eternal life through me, and then you also have to continue to not eat bacon, okay? You have to do this, or you have to be circumcised, you have to do this, right? You, they would have used Jesus, and none of that happens. Jesus is incredibly neutral on all of that and just says, everyone is welcome to follow me. He doesn't use any of those hot-button topics. So here's what I believe. I believe that... When we look at the New Testament, the books match up against other historical documents. I believe that they fit well in history, and I believe that the authors had the proper motives, and they show zero motivation to do anything other than tell the truth. So that brings us to question number four. So what? So what do we do with that? We can have all the knowledge in the world and say, yeah, we think maybe this is true, but then what do we do with it? And this is the part where the tension hits for those of us who are followers of Jesus and those of us who aren't followers of Jesus, is that sometimes biblical truth takes a lot of work to put into practice. And sometimes it goes against who we are. I say it this way, sometimes the journey from the head to the heart can be a very difficult one. I think we've all been in spaces where you have a bad day or you see something happen or you go through something and we've all gone to bed just thinking, I hope I wake up tomorrow and it was just a bad dream. Because what I know to be true is not what I want to be actually true. I think sometimes that's the same with biblical truth. We look at what God says, we look at what Jesus says, we look at what the scriptures teach and we go, yeah, but that doesn't fit with who I want to be or what I want to be true. And so what do we do with that? Jesus had an interesting conversation about this, and I think it, it's very prevalent for where we are today. In John chapter 5, starting in verse 39, he says this, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Next verse, So for I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. Okay, so let's think about that, right? He goes, you look at the scriptures for eternal life. The scriptures point to me. That's what Jesus claims. He says, and yet you don't come to me for that eternal life. And then he says, and this is very interesting, for I've come to you in my father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. Think about that for a minute. When others show up, in the conversation, and they say something that we agree with or feels right to us, it can be very tempting for us to go, you know what? I agree with that person. I like what they have to say. It's very easy to do that because what they say matches up with what we feel. But Jesus says, look at what is true of me. Look at the scriptures that point to me. Look at the sacrifice I've made for you. And then he goes on, he says, no wonder you can't believe, for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. This puts us in a very 
difficult space where we have to recognize that the truth we believe comes from Scripture, not just because we look at it and say it's historically accurate, but because we believe what Jesus says when he says, the Scriptures point to me, and remember what he said to Pilate. Actually, let me go back to that real quick. In John 18, 37, right, Pilate says, So are you a king? Jesus responded, You say, I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world. Why? To testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. Can I make like kind of a bold statement about that? I believe what Jesus is saying is those who search for true truth are going to find Jesus. That's what that means. That when you, you like figure out what's true, you evaluate and see if this is true, is that true, is what I'm doing, where, where do I come to, what is the most true thing? Jesus would say that it's him, that he is the truth and the one that we should depend on. And then Pilate responds, right? I don't want to read the whole verse, but he just says this. What is truth? And Pilate wrestles with that. Listen, we're all wrestling with that question. What is truth? And why do we wrestle with that? It's because if you don't have the truth, I don't think you have anything. We all live our lives from day to day with different truths we believe. We believe that our car is going to start, right? We believe that we'll have our job tomorrow. We believe that our house will be the same. We believe that this is where we're going to go. We believe that this is what we're going to do. We believe that this person cares this way or this relationship is going to be the same. And we believe those things to be true and we live life in light of it. And when those things become not true, then we have to reevaluate and figure it out. And, and we search for that truth because it informs the things we do each and every day. But here's the question, and here's what it comes down to sometimes, is what about when my theology doesn't match up with the Bible? I think this happens a lot. I think this is a big problem that people who are not followers of Jesus have when they look at Christianity. They look at their own theology and they go, that doesn't match up with the Bible. And usually when I have conversations about this, nine times out of ten, do you know what the conversation is? It's about Old Testament stuff. It's about, I don't want to believe in a God who would kill everybody in a flood except for like eight people on a boat. I don't want to believe in a God who would send people to hell. I don't want to believe in God that would do these certain things. And when that doesn't count or that doesn't make sense or that doesn't match with what I believe, I have a hard time believing that. And I don't think that's actually just something for people who are not followers of Jesus. I think there are those of us who follow Jesus who see biblical truth all the time. I do this. And it's just hard to implement. It's hard to move it from my head to my heart to say, I'm going to actually do what the scriptures require of me because of what Jesus did for me. Out of an obedience and a love to him, even when my theology doesn't match up with the Bible. But here's what I want to say. If some of that conversation comes out of a thought process or an evaluation of the Old Testament, here's what I want to say. It's very simple. Start with Jesus. Every time I have a conversation with somebody that goes, I don't want to believe what was taught in the Old Testament. I don't like that God. I go, let's start having a conversation about Jesus. Because here's what I know to be true. If the story of Jesus isn't true, none of the other stuff matters. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't die and rise from the dead, guess what? The whole Old Testament can go. We don't need it. We don't have to believe in any of it. It's the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead that's the whole reason we have to think about it and process it and figure out what to do with it anyway. 
So if, if we're going to have a conversation, let's have a conversation about Jesus. Because if, if his story is not true, then none of the other stuff matters. But here's what I think is true also. If the story of Jesus is true, the difficult becomes a lot less difficult to believe. Because we're starting from a framework that says, I believe that Jesus was who he says he was. And I'm going to move from that square instead of starting with the frustration that comes when my theology doesn't match up with the theology that seems to be in the scriptures. So what do we do with this? I kind of took us all over the place today, right? I gave you a lot of information. I said, I believe that this is more true, not just because of historical evidence, but because of the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. And we can trust the people who told us that he was who he said he was. And that requires something of us. That requires that we have to look at truth and live it out. And not just define truth by what we say we want to be true or what our theological beliefs are, but that we would look at what we believe is the best source of truth and say that if my source of truth doesn't match up with that source of truth, then I've got a problem. Then I need to reevaluate. Then I need to rethink the way that I'm living. And this isn't just something for people that don't follow Jesus yet. This is something for all of us. That there would be truths in scripture that we have set to the side maybe. And so I'll worry about that later, or maybe that's not for me, or maybe I just don't need to worry about that. The last scripture I want to look at today is, is just one sentence, and it's from Jesus. It's in Luke 7, verse 35. He just says this, But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. What does that mean? I want you to think back, especially if you're an adult in the room, Think back to when you were, I don't know, a teenager. Maybe there was an adult that you saw, and you saw the way that they lived their life, and you saw the choices that they made, and you said, I would want that life. I look at the decisions they made and what they've been able to do and the type of person they are, and I, I look at them and I go, I, that life looks good to me. What you were seeing was the wisdom that you thought was true lived out and you said, I can see the results of it and I want to chase after that. What I would say is true of Jesus and I would kind of ask it in a question is, if we followed Jesus, if we took this to be true and we followed him, would our love and our life be better than if we didn't? Would people feel more loved by us if we looked more like Jesus? Would people appreciate us more if we looked more like Jesus? Would people engage with us more and want to know what we have if we looked more like Jesus? And this question is for all of us across the board, follower of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus. I still think if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you looked at just the life of Jesus, whether or not you believe he rose from the dead, you would say, if I lived the type of life and I was the type of person Jesus called people to be, I would be a kind of person that I would want to be. I would be a kind person and a loving person and someone who people want to be around and want to engage with and they would see something different in me. And so here's what I want us to do as, as we think about this, right? When you come to a space where biblical truth is difficult to deal with, think about what Jesus calls us to and think about, if I follow this, where will that lead me? Does it lead me to a place I want to be? Or does it lead me to a place maybe I don't 
want to be? And the last question for today is just for us to process, how will we allow the truth to change us? Is there a truth from scripture that you've been thinking about or processing or putting off and you need to take it on? Like you need to either start doing something or stop doing something that you know is biblically not what you should be doing? And what's your motivation for that? Is it because of what Jesus did for us? Here's what I don't want to do. I don't ever want us to just go, well, because the Bible tells me so, I guess I have to do this, right? It's not the right answer. The answer is we look at this and what was the conversation Jesus had with Pilate? It says, I am truth. And those who believe the truth will find me. So when we believe that, we recognize it, we put it into practice, we be the type of person that Jesus calls us to be. It's going to lead us to a space where wisdom is lived out and we will see the truth in that. If you're not sure of that yet, it's okay. Continue to process, continue to think about what the case is. But I believe that when the authors wrote the Gospels and the New Testament, their goal was to share the truth. And that truth was Jesus. And that was all the motivation they had. And if we live that out, it's going to change us, it's going to change our families, it's going to change our communities. It's going to lead us to a place where we look more like Jesus. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and I'm going to pray before we sing our last song together. Lord, we are grateful that we have these accounts that we can look back to and say, this is incredibly true. It matches up with history. It matches up with the authors and their motivation. And, and we can look at that and we can say, yeah, we believe that this is the case. But I pray that that knowledge would make its way to our heart. That we would recognize that if that is true, that it changes us. That we live lives that look differently because we believe that this is true. And that those lives point people to you because you are the truth. I pray for us as we sometimes process things and we read scripture and we say that's a difficult truth to understand. That's a difficult thing to live out. I pray that you would allow that truth to sink into who we are and that we would live lives that honor you even when we don't want to, even when our flesh says that's not what I want to do. I pray that we would have the ability to trust you in that moment. We pray that we would encourage each other to do the same, to live lives that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.